Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L O U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm D. Chupar. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster Slapping the Dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. Thomas, known as Henry Ragtime Texas Thomas, was born on or around 1874 in Upshur County near Big Sandy, Texas. He was the son of former slaves who became sharecroppers. Picking cotton wasn't something Henry enjoyed, so at a young age, he took to the roads, trains, and sleeping under bridges. Moving around a lot, he wrote lyrics based on his excursions and experiences. And though he may be considered a bluesman, with songs that has blues in the title, there's way more to Henry's musicianship than meets the eye. This is part one of the Jack Dapper Blues podcast series in association with the Lone Star Blues and Heritage Festival on Henry Thomas, a Texas blues legend, which features my recurring guest, the American songster himself, Dom Fleming. What's happening, what's happening, what's happening, blues people? Yet another fiery and informative podcast of Jack Dapper Blues Radio with a special guest, well, a recurring guest, right? Mm-hmm. American songster Don Flemings. What's happening? Oh, man, Jack Dapper, I'm feeling good, man. I'm just uh, hanging out and glad to speak with you, man. Groovy, you know, I mean, a lot. our last several, well, I don't know if it's several, our last few podcasts were about other people we got to get back we got to in the future get back to some of the interesting things you're doing you were just in a, a quite a few very interesting festivals absolutely i mean uh, amongst the most invited to be a part of a festival celebrating the music of joel walker sweeney who's one of the early black-faced minstrels who popularized southern banjo playing on the the, the minstrel stage because if you break down the theater form it started out as dancers and bones players, but then the banjo came in as sort of a, it was a relic of African-American culture. And when it came in, it, it, it was the the element that made minstrelsy international. And so Joe Walker Sweeney, he was from Appomattox, Virginia, which is where they signed the, uh, the final paperwork to end the Civil War. That's where Robert E. Lee surrendered the South. Mm. So. It, the juxtaposition of both of these stories is quite uh, mind-blowing in of itself. And so they invited me to do the festival. And this year they did a, a very special commemoration. Um, they unveiled a marker commemorating the African-American players whose names they don't know. But um, Joel Walker Sweeney was always very upfront that he learned the banjo from the uh, the folks on the plantation, the enslaved Africans that lived near him. Because I then found out he was a slightly poor white family compared to a lot of uh, more wealthy families that were living around him. So he had even there's a whole different economic situation that his family um, was uh, navigating through. And so it, 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 I was a part of this this uh, commemoration and it was just really wonderful. They really want to open up the, the ground so that everybody can share in this history that is uh, uh, muddled and complex and very scary. But, you know, in the 21st century, they really are extending an olive branch to say, come on down. And we want to tell you 
everything we know about our um, our history and whatever it might be, you know. So it was really powerful. That, that is, yeah. and I mean, you know, that is like so many compartments that could be dove into. Uh, just the fact of. Out of everything you said, one thing that really sticks out would be the misconception of the relationship between poor whites and enslaved blacks during these times. Yeah, it's it's really, um, you know, because we have to think of their ideological struggles, but then there's like the struggle that's on the ground level on the streets. And that's that can be uh, that can take a lot of different variations. And so if we think of a time. I mean, before they've even built roads on any of these cities and towns and villages, I mean, there are just a, a very complex and diverse amount of stories that you'll find when you really go to the places and start to uh, pull back the layers. It it, it can be um, uh, a little scary at times, I'll, right. I'll, I'll admit, but uh, at the same time, everybody is coming with the idea that we want to educate each other and, and we want to move forward in, in whatever steps or whatever capacity we can. And so to be a representative there and to also, um, I raised the tune on uh, uh, Down by the Riverside. Mm. And um, it was very wonderful uh, uh, with all of the different elements of that site for the, the crowd and I to be able to raise that song on that spot. It was, um, it was a very powerful moment. I can imagine. And even before we get into our topic today, I must say, based on what you just said, just thinking about some of the slave narratives that I've read and covered, speaking about this dynamic, you know, in regards to in some in some situations in this, this was a family household, even though in, in public they couldn't present it that way. But on the inside, they really were family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we have to think of politics just like um, now or any other time of politics. Um, you know, there's just there's a social story that's behind the 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 bigger ideology that's being presented. And whether people agree with it or not, again, that's a, that's something that especially in the South, people they they compartmentalize the social part compared to some of the other parts. So anyway, it's a again in in the 21st century, so many people in the South are socially so much more progressive than uh, the media may give some of them credit for. Mm. It's it's a it's a long journey and it's been an uphill battle. But again, I lived in the South for about 10 years. I lived in North Carolina and I'm living in Maryland, which is still the South technically, but. Right. I, I I live there and I under I could understand uh, both both perceptions of, um, you know, relegating backward and then trying to move forward. It, it, it's it's really something. But being someone not from the South, I also understand that I don't like to comment on those things because I'm not from there. And Correct. It's, it, and, it's, and there's a fine line that you have to walk, especially as an interpreter and as an ambassador to how you're you're talking to everybody, you know, and, and again, music is a, is a safe space so that everybody can get together and, and a conversation can arise from that. So it, I, I've just been fortunate that I've been in, in situations where everybody was very open and, and we all wanted to do the right thing in the end. So I've, in that way, I've been very lucky. <laughs> no, well, that's groovy because we know it can always go left quickly, but I, I, I we, we have to, because you and I can stay on this for two hours. <laughs> we, let, let's go into the topic of today. And today's topic is about Henry Thomas, whose songs represent the oldest traditions of American Black music ever recorded. Um, 
His songs come with stories, work calls, stomps, and hollers. He's performed, played, I guess, and recorded blues, ragtime, minstrel, black spiritual, square dance tunes, hillbilly reels, waltzes, coon songs, and the pop songs of the day. And he also, to my understanding, took the moniker Ragtime Texas, not because he plays ragtime, but because he was actually, um, how do you say, well-versed in advertisement, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> right? So Don being a quill player and a songster, let you unpack this very um, mysterious, unique, and not obscure, because it's portrayed as he's very obscure, but I Actually, he was a rather popular figure, correct? Well, it's it's really interesting how how you how you look at the legacy of Henry Thomas. It's over time he's become a much more popular figure than he might have been during his own era. The one indication that we have that he's popular is that he recorded 23 songs between 1927 and 1929 for Vocaline and Brunswick Records. And so, uh, you know, if a, a musician wasn't that popular, they would probably only do maybe two to six sides in one session, and then they might they might not have him come back. But he did enough recordings to where, uh, we you know, we see that he has a sizable repertoire. So he was very popular in that regard, and that we do know. And then later on, a lot of people have covered his songs. And that's one of the things that, that's created the longest-lasting legacy of Henry Thomas. But for me personally, as I got into his music, I, uh, I began to see that, Similar to uh, another songster from East Texas, um, uh, Leadbelly, Cutie Leadbetter, he he is almost a, a Rosetta Stone of the African American folk music traditions in the popular world as well as in the folk music world. Mm. In a way that is, um, you know, when you start to understand each of the details of the songs he recorded, it really is astounding how much ground he covers in 23, 23 songs. Wow! So now let's. Stick there for a, a hot second. I, I want to unpack, if you will, the ground he covered, the grounds he covered in these uh, 23 songs, because th there's a misconception right now. You, you know, the, 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 the trajectory and history of, of what I would call African-American traditional music is not as narrow as it's been uh, presented. I'll put that way, because I don't I don't personally think everything is malicious. I just have to make that disclaimer. Yeah, absolutely. Some, I think, is just, a lot of these things are, are just more available to find now, possibly. But either way, so when you say he covered a lot of grounds, and in the introduction, we've mentioned many of these songs, or, or styles of songs, explain to us these grounds and, and, and these traditional musics that seem to not be equated with African-American traditional music? Well, I'll, I'll kind of do a small intro to get us to where we need the conversation to go. So like if we think of before recorded music, maybe like, let's say like the, the late 1890s, 1898, 1899 is when you start having music that you could record and then uh, you could preserve it and then you could give it you could give it and then later sell it to somebody. So we're seeing a, in, in this period, we're seeing an era when they're just uh, introducing the the um, uh, the world to American folk music through uh, records, because before it was flowing out of the land itself and the people and the rural communities that 
required folk music. So a songster didn't have to be necessarily popular on a worldwide scale like we would think of now for a big star. But if they were the main songster in town, they were quite popular in their community but their community could be quite small when you look at it on the world's scale. Okay. So, so we'll think about it that way. So if we think of there being folk songs from a particular region, um, if they are not recorded and presented back to that community, the community would just get into whatever popular records there were, and they may leave behind folk music traditions. And folk music is fragile in that way. It only takes one generation to lose a whole uh, folk tradition that could be hundreds of years old. But it's, you know, the shiny objects always move people to to uh, progress in one way, but also it's the, it's the classic story of, you know, what things do you retain and what things do you not retain? So all of Henry Thomas's recordings are happening in Chicago. So he's going from Texas up to Chicago to make his records, like a lot of these rural performers. Um, so we ha- we get into the story of A&R men. And so with uh, records being content driven before being artist driven, you had uh, you had a demand for certain communities. And, and so for Henry Thomas's case, so uh, there would be people in East Texas that would want to hear the sounds of Henry Thomas. And they built a market for East Texas around someone like Henry Thomas. So they would sell it back to the people. So with that being with all that being said, he is presenting the things that would be popular for his community. So there's a, a broad folk tradition around that. And so uh, in other cases, many times, uh, especially as the Depression came on, the A&R men began to narrow their view of what race records or country music or old time music or jazz or all these different types of music. What, they, they really narrowed the definition to be something very consistent. And so now we think of blues and country as having a very specific sound. But in the 1920s, it was still a little bit open in open market and fair game on what would sell. And so you have an A&R man like J. Mayo Williams, who is the fellow who was working in Vocalion. He has a background of working with uh, vaudeville performers like Alberta Hunter and people like Ethel Waters and Fletcher Henderson, Papa Charlie Jackson and Ida Cox. And he later then works with people like Louis Jordan and Sister Rosetta Tharp. But during this period, he's transitioning out of working at Paramount Records, where he had worked out of Grafton, Wisconsin. And then he starts working with Vocalion. So the popular stuff he's selling is stuff like Georgia Tom Dorsey and Tampa Red and Leroy Carr. That type of stuff is what he's pushing on the pop end. But then there's an undercurrent of all these different folk musicians. And there's a lot of vaudeville music that kind of reaches back 20 and 30 years previous. And that's part of J. Mayo Williams' legacy as an A&R man. And he was one of the few African-American A&R men, I think, if if not the only one to work for a bigger race label uh, in the 1920s. So he's this guy that's kind of steering the rudder and he's pulling pulling up really interesting performers within his legacy. So Henry Thomas is part of that because Henry Thomas is the one performer that records with this folk instrument, the quills, the panpipes, the African-American panpipes. And uh, there are this is his uh, nine songs he records on his out of his 23 with quills are really the um, I mean, it's the foundation of what we have on this instrument. There are also there are two other quills players, Sid Hemphill from to Sledge, Mississippi, and Joe Patterson from Dothan, Alabama. And they recorded at very different times and they had very different styles of quills playing in many ways. But Henry Thomas's is really the the 
the finest uh, sounding recordings we have of the quills. And so you, you find that there's this sort of uh, counterbalance between popular music and folk music within Henry Thomas's own repertoire that I, I think is very, um, I think it's, it's indicative of the people that were behind the recorders that were recording at the same time. My first time I became aware of the sort of A&R work that J. Mayo Williams had been doing for these companies was when I was uh, writing my article for the Oxford American. And I began to notice a pattern um, with Gus Cannon's work where I found that even though Gus Cannon was recording in the 1920s, which we think of as being a really long time ago, he right. was actually referencing songs that were actually 15 and sometimes 20 or 30 years older. And so the sort of retention rate of, uh, of material even uh, told quite a story uh, when it came to Gus Cannon's individual story. And Henry Thomas, I, I realized when I started to look back at Henry Thomas's repertoire, I found that there were a lot of the same sort of patterns. You know, this is actually, um, I had to write out a whole bunch of notes because there are so many footnotes to each individual song that it, I couldn't just uh, run through all of this stuff just off the top of my head. But uh, Understood. The next, the next step would probably be to break it all down, but I can uh, I can do that in just a moment. Well, yeah, I would like you to do that, but before you do that, I have to ask you this question. As you and I both being folklorists and ethnomusicologists, right? Mm-hmm. And just <laughs> on an anti-commercialism uh, feat of how music has taken a turn... How how was that in the in these early days in the twenties and it has to have started in the teens as well? With, with these A and Rs, which is 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 really quite telling to be able to connect that term because that term became really popular in the nineties. These A and Rs were they working with folklorists? How did they know where to find these people? Or were these people? These, these quote-unquote obscure rural musicians uh, hearing about them and traveling to where they were. It's Sp- specific, really- specific to Henry Thomas as well. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no problem. Well, the scholarship on A&R uh, men and women of the industry in the early days, it's still a fairly new part of the scholarship. Recently, there was a book that came out called A&R Pioneers that that uh, brings together some of the uh, interviews that they did with uh, some of these pioneers in the field. So so you have to imagine, again, uh, records being more content-driven than artist-driven. So it's the antithesis of how we think of music now. We think of hit record, hit artist, and then, you know, then we we go to their concerts and we obsess over the single artist. But correct before before that, everybody would think of you know like for race records, for example, race records were uh, uh, recordings that were adhering to the ideologies of the race, which was African Americans at that time, and it references back to Booker T. Washington and uplifting the race, and so. All of the music in some form or another was talking about uplifting the race, the African-American community, while old familiar songs or hillbilly, because, again, hillbilly is kind of a pejorative for southern uh, white people. Correct. Old familiar songs is another name they used, but it was an idea of a the southern working class past of white culture as race records is the southern working class music that's kind of progressive because socially there there were ideologies that were pushing those two forms of you know interaction uh, of 
American culture at that time. So you start having uh, the A&R men are coming in with an idea of what the audience might want. So it, with that, uh, just to break down what an A&R person is, that means artist and repertoire. So you have to imagine if you um, if we were to put it into something that's very current, we have an artist like, let's say, uh, let's say, let's say, uh, um, duh, 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 duh. let's say like the, the movie Cadillac Records. We'll keep it with blues. Okay. So Cadillac Records, uh, Beyonce played the role of Etta James and did the song At Last. And so the A&R man would be Adrian Brody, who's the Chess Brothers or the, the Chess Brothers turned into one person. So the Chess Brothers, they had a company. They needed records, they needed to sell those records, and they needed content. So they would grab a artist like Etta James, and either she would have songs, or they would present her with songs from their songwriter, Willie Dixon in the background, who writes songs for them, and then they make an excellent recording of those songs. And then from there, they have hit records. And so that's kind of the traditional way that the rec- record industry was was uh, built, especially once you start having more regional music, because it was based on the idea that from the ground level, you have a better idea of what people are looking for in the bar rooms. And then, of course, during the Depression, you had jukeboxes. So now you're looking for what are people looking for in jukeboxes? So you have Muddy Waters or Hank Williams to uh, service those jukeboxes. And then later you have the radio. So Motown is mixing to the radio because they know their audience is going to the radio. So A&R people are the ones who think of all this stuff. And then it goes to the audience and then we love the record. So that's the idea of an A&R man, basically. And, and, and what A&R people did is different for every story. You find some people are really hands-on. You find some people were very hands-off. You find some people had songs ready to give to the artist. You find other ones let the artist do what they did. And that was how that, that went down, you know? Um, and so with all that in mind, you know, Henry Thomas was said to be a traveling hobo musician, but he was well known within his, uh, his part of Texas, as well as he, he traveled the, the train line. So he has a song where he describes every single city that he's tra- traveling on the train line from Texas all the way up to Chicago. So he's very familiar with a lot of different urban centers that during segregated times, that was the only way you could get around as a, an African-American person is get off the train and go to the black section of town. Right. So Henry Thomas, in his own way, is very adept at traveling around, even though he's a hobo and itinerant, the the idea of what an itinerant musician might be in the 1920s before they made highways in the new deal is very different than we would think of now. Correct. Cause he would be somewhat of the CNN of the time, right? Because mm-hmm. he goes into these regions and then when he goes for argument's sake, he heads back to East Texas. His songs are giving, um, his audience who didn't have the means or whatever to travel, he's giving them a a, 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 a journal through, through song of what was actually going on in these other places, correct? Absolutely. And, and what makes Henry Thomas so unique is that he has half a repertoire of folk songs, like folk songs like we would think of. Um, and then he has a, a, another half of his repertoire that is very much... Uh, built on black popular music of the time, which was uh, ragtime. And I mean, coon songs a little bit. What's what's unique about Henry Thomas, too, is that anytime he has a coon song in his repertoire, he has taken out all the offensive words. So mm. there are no offensive words with Henry Thomas in of itself. 
uh, in terms of, you know, the keywords that would really, you know, set someone's ears a ringing. So it's um, he is he is, uh, you know, cleaned up all of his songs within from the time that he learned them to the moment that he decided to record them. So that's something that's very unique as well as you're finding a songster that is also catering to an African-American community that doesn't want to take that. But they love the melodies and they love what the songs are saying or doing or some of them are very funny so it's the jokes are good too well so we have uh like a double conundrum here or oxymoron because to, he, he's a hobo that's brilliant so to speak right and could be considered educated right mm-hmm. yes and, and and that's that's sort of where uh as you delve into the layers of Henry Thomas's repertoire, you start finding a very unique story that um, even though when I first was introduced to Henry Thomas's music through the writings of Mac McCormick and Stephen Colt, he is treated like he is in an ancient anachronism that is a, uh, that is rule, almost like the primordial ooze of okay. of African American folk songs uh, rising up, and this is the first moment to lead us to Robert Johnson. And which I don't mind that narrative. That's what they wrote, and that's what they felt. You know, right, right. Because in terms of Henry Thomas's playing style, his style is so much more reminiscent to banjo playing than the blues playing that would be more defined by people like Robert Johnson or Skip James or um, even Charlie Patton, even though Henry Thomas has his moments where he does things that are similar to Charlie Patton. But you can tell that Henry Thomas is much more akin to Lead Belly or Matt Slipscomb and more of a uh, string band based type of banjo guitar style compared to being a more of a a straight picker where he's doing a lot of elaborate harmonic and you know uh, a lot a lot of elaborate harmonic runs and things like that like lead belly though he has some really wicked bass runs that he's he does constantly in all of his recordings and if you try to sit down and learn it it's actually quite hard to do <laughs> yeah now I, I'm, I'm happy that you made a a um comparison so to speak to man's lipscomb because this is something i would like us to touch on right now this this idea of songsters uh morphing or evolving into bluesmen right because it, it, the more I, I, I delve into this um, aspect of African-American traditional music, it, it's said often that they, they, the, the songsters became the new bluesmen or something to this effect. But it, it's quite obvious that they didn't necessarily change the style of music they were playing. They were just uh, aware enough to give it these titles. And Henry Tom. Thomas was one of those people who had a multitude of songs that had the term blues in it, but may not be considered blues by, uh, how do you say, uh, enthusiasts or traditionalists, correct? Well, absolutely. And and that's one of the things that's so interesting about uh, even the fact that he made records because his style is so different from what became the blues it also again it 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 shows how uh, fairly you know fair game everything was during the 1920s it's it's kind of like how we think of youtube videos right now or like mm. you know where it's just at that time they were just cranking records out of stuff that seemed cool to the people that were 
that were at the A&R positions at that time. And so you find stuff that is very much in line what they normally do, but you find all of these interesting digressions, if you will. And, and this is because these guys were actually going down to the South trying to figure out who were the musicians that were really uh, making some waves with... Um, with the music, whether it was rhythmically or whether it was lyrically or or they had a unique style. And they really crafted that idea around these records. And so like with Henry Thomas, for example, um, I guess uh, we can just maybe start breaking into a couple of the songs just to absolutely yeah, just to kind of focus it in. So the first section that I'll talk about is our folk songs and ballads. And so kind of like narrative songs from the African-American folk tradition, but more the American folk tradition, because Henry Thomas also, his style is both uh, country and Western and blues at the same time. Correct. Stylistically as well as lyrically. So you find stuff that's kind of half and half. Like the very first song he records is John Henry, which is the most well-known African-American folk song of all time. Plain Absolutely. But, this, but he has a unique variation where it even his version of John Henry is a different form than the standard version you might hear. And some of the words as well... steam drive beat me down i'll die with my hammer in my hand is a verse that you it is it does not really show up in a lot of versions of john henry so he has he has some really unique verses even with 
right from right off the bat, he has some really unique verses for his version of John Henry. And um, you can tell with the quills right off the bat, too. It's um, it's such a powerful sound. You can see why someone would be interested and would want to just record this guy for what he what he was doing. Absolutely. Well, you know what? In, In a traditional and generational sense. Would you say that considering a lot of uh, scholars and, and, and researchers wrote that he's actually the most direct correlational connection to slave songs or even music roots of music in Africa, would you say that his rendition of John Henry may be the either the actual original passed down or the most the, the the one that's the most closest to this original story or concept? Well, it's funny you ask the question in that way, because now I got to give you two answers again. (laughs) Yes, in yes, in one regard, resoundingly, yes, this reaches back to as far as we can get back to Mm. to a, a song like John Henry. But we have to remember that John Henry is a story and a song and a conceptual idea. So it's sort of a free-flowing idea within American culture of what John Henry was and is and what he symbolizes. So when you have the songs, when you hear different versions of John Henry, it's really indicative of the type of music or what uh, type of performer you have performing the song. And so with Henry Thomas, in one way, you know, his, his forebearers go all the way back And so he's part of that first or second generation right out of slavery, being emancipated and having choices to go out there. But he's retaining everything that that came before. So in one way, a resounding yes. But the other way that's devil's advocate to this is that from the 1820s and 30s, they begin to write down African-American folk songs, and then they begin to adapt even the African-American folk songs that had been written down and begin to make newer versions of it based within the classical music tradition. I'll be very broad with it, like the Fish Jubilee Singers, for example. They're doing folk songs, but they are arranged, classical arrangements of folk songs that were from the the cotton fields or the plantation or or the churches of old. So it's like it's folk music, but then it's been translated into something that is a composition. But then once you have people learning those compositions and then doing them as folk music again, it takes a whole other level. But as you get deeper into it, you find Henry Thomas has this going on with other parts of his repertoire. John Henry's pretty straight ahead. It's like folk song, a folk song version, folk song style with the quills mm-hmm. and unique words. So in that way, it's it's really straightforward. The the next song, uh, well, the other two ballads are Bob McKinney, which is a song um, that has not been written down anywhere else. So the ballad of Bob McKinney as a bad man ballad, which is another style, which is a at the time, we, if we imagine that African Americans are socially uh, being suppressed in terms mm-hmm. of the voice that they can use, character bad man ballads and characters like Stagley, or right. later on the readaption of a character like Stagley in the form of like um, you know like a Hustlers Convention and that type of stuff is mm-hmm. is built off of Stagley, and then in the seventies they really rebuilt this character to be kind of like the swagger pimp and then like the then hip-hop 
picked up on that. And then they've continued the swagger aspect of African-American folk tradition. But I, I'll get back to that part a little bit later. Okay. But um, but with Bob McKinney, it, the, the ballads, the bad man ballads are are ballads where the protagonist is very aggressive, but the reason he's so aggressive is he's in a situation that the only way he can get through it is fighting. And so that that's a, that's a character that reoccurs again and again. So Bob McKinney comes in, and the whole song is about how much of a bad man he is. songs like Jim Jackson has a song I'm a bad bad man and there's a there's a whole tradition around this so with Bob McKinney what makes it unique is that this ballad goes through about four verses and then Henry Thomas begins to do a medley and um, he, he goes into a song called Take Me Back which is one that was recorded by Mance Lipscomb as well as Lightning Hopkins and then Blind Lemon Jefferson recorded it as Begging Back and mm. he breaks into this other song for two verses then he breaks into make me a pallet on your floor which is a very uh, ubiquitous african-american jazz ragtime you know song that uh, fits right in that sort of 
1890s, 18, 1900s sort of, uh, you know, gray area of African-American folk music pop. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. go straight into The Bully of the Town, which is a song that was copyrighted in 1896, and it was uh, written by a fellow named Charles E. Uh, Tre- uh, Trevithan, and he wrote it for a, uh, a, a white Canadian performer by the name of May Irwin. Now, mm. Henry Thomas only mentions it at the very end of this medley. He just mentions, I'm looking for the bully of the town, and I'm looking for the bully. And that's kind of it. But the song itself, it, this song will still sting people's ears just to hear it now, because it drops the end bomb like nobody's business in the original form. Mm. And it was part of a uh, musical uh, in the 1890s called The Widow Jones, um, which became also one of the... Um, first films to feature a kiss recorded by Thomas Edison. So this was a very big, big song because even though it has all these offensive words, there are no black characters within the story of the widow Jones. So it's a very, it's very, uh, it's a very interesting song because it is, it is so extreme. And then also, uh, as I've done my research as well, the writer of this song worked for uh, William Randolph Hearst. And so this is a song that comes out of the Yellow Journalism, Yellow Journalism Spanish-American War um, era. And so the bully pulpit and all that stuff, people go look this stuff up and you'll see that this this type of song, the way it's it's offensive, is very specific to its time. It's not really a... At first, you would think, wow, everybody was very racist. But when you start learning the history of this song, you find out, wow, these guys put out a very racist message to get everybody to have a big knee-jerk reaction to the situation at hand. And so Henry Thomas just Hmm. slyly mentions this song and then moves on. And so that's the whole Bob McKinney. So it's in its own way, it's kind of like um, the the Serbo-Croatian... Symphony director um, uh, Anton Dvorak, he put out a message in the in the late 1890s with the New World Symphony in New York, and he made a proclamation that African American folk songs and and what they called the poor folks opera needed to be the um, the foundation of the American songbook. And so Bob Mc- and so uh, Henry Thomas in this song Bob McKinney has a lot of the elements of what Dvorak was talking about as a folk musician. He's sort of leaning into something that's very much stylistically almost classical in a way or almost like Stephen Sondheim in a way because how he's singing the songs and using these pastiches of four different songs is very much in line with Broadway, but it's also very much in line with what hip-hop would become later. And this, so as you delve into the ballads, he has that one, and he has a second one called Arkansas, which is a well-known cowboy song, The State of Arkansas, which is basically, I went down to Arkansas and they gave me bad bad bread, they gave me uh, bad water and everything like that, and I had to leave the state of old Arkansas. So it's an old comedy song that's a cowboy song. And so the form of this thing, it starts off with a song called um, uh, Let Me Bring My Clothes Back Home, which was written by a black vaudevillian and coon song composer named Irving Jones, who we talked about in a previous podcast. Correct. And so so Henry Thomas starts out with an Irving Jones number. He does about a verse and a half of it, and then he breaks into this Arkansas song. There's an old cowboy number that has a whole bunch of different tunes smashed into it. It goes with something like this here. 
Out the turnaround, pack a trunk and go. Yes, he came back home last night. My wife said, honey, I'm done with beans. I'm going to passenger train. Oh, my little honey, don't you make me go. I'll get a job if you allow me show. Now she said, listen. Oh, crap shooters, I will shun. Go on, baby, and let me rest. Now he gone said this. When you got a chicken, all I want is the bone. When you got a BRB, satisfy with phone. I work both night and day. I be careful what I say. Honey, what? Please, let me bring my clothes back home. Down the track this morning, she did stroll. With an accident, her foot got caught in a hole. So she goes off like this, says, I'm going to tell you the truth. A natural loving cold man wasted my precious time. The rail track he run. I'm going to buy me more cigarettes. I get a pack of when I can. Because matches and troubles are heavy on a man. times I saw, but I never knew what bitterness was till I left old Arkansas. Now I started out one morning to meet that early train. The man, he said, you better wait with me. I have some land to drain. I'll give you 15 cents a day. You're washing clothes and I'll and I swear you'll be a different man in the state of old Arkansas. Then the finale of Arkansas is he does a chorus of Traveling Man, which is another Texas folk song that's been recorded by a lot of different people from Prince Albert Hunt, who's a, who was a white blackface performer, to um, Coley, Coley Jones, who was part of the Dallas String Band. And there's quite a few different recordings of Traveling Man. And, and it was very much in cachet at that time in Texas. And so even just with these three songs, we've told a very complex story of African-American folk songs with just three songs at nine minutes of material we've covered like 50 years of of, of culture right you know? that's 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 i mean I, i'm amazed and it's remarkable and i and i i didn't want to interrupt you because you were giving such uh, uh prevalent info, uh, information but the only thing that keeps going to my mind as i'm hearing all of this was, was this intent like was this uh socially conscious or, or politically driven or intentional, or was this just a musical decision? Do, do you understand what I'm saying? I know exactly what you mean. That's actually one of the things I'm still trying to find is because since they didn't really keep great notes on purpose with this stuff, it's hard to tell if there was a if there was an agenda where the publishers, again, like when we think of country music, half of what makes country music uh what it is is that there are publishing companies that create the country songs and they find a great singer to do them or they find a great songwriter and then they have them present their songs you know like willie nelson's a perfect example like correct we know, we know willie nelson as an artist but he's also a song publisher because he's a songwriter and so that so you're we find that they still use the same method even with african-american folk music and so it it pulls back a layer and it says wait a second well who's henry thomas working for 
decision of what type of material he's doing within his 23 songs. So those are the main three folk songs. But again, folk song now, as you as you're hearing in this description, is you know folk song starts to become a little bit gray as we're going into it. Thank you for listening to Jack Dapper Blues podcast series part one of Henry Thomas, Texas blues legend, with my special reoccurring guest, the American songster. Dom Flemings. Be sure to tune in next week as we go deeper into the history and story of Henry Ragtime Texas Thomas.